Hey guys, welcome back to SoFi episode 3 part 2. We are talking about language today and we will be starting from where we left off in the last episode in 3, 2, 1. Uh, I think I posed this question in the beginning or maybe I did not, I don't remember but what is the uh, relationship between language in the world and what is the relationship between language and the mind? So uh, before you go into it, I think a very simplistic model would be you have the world, yeah. your mind sees the world. You use language to describe the world. Yeah. yeah? So that will automatically be uh, assuming that there is a entity that you are describing through language. And the same entity can be used through mind as well. So as you said, thoughts are put into place by language. So yeah. there are thoughts floating around and use language to put those thoughts through the world. So it's a two-way language is a bridge between the mind and the world. True. Yeah. But is that conception entirely correct? Can you think about things that might actually change that notion. I do not believe that it is simply a bridge between the mind and the world, yeah, because the mind, the way I think right now, is highly structured, it is highly influenced by the languages I study, alright, every thought that comes to me and the way I process information, the way I process all my sensory input, yeah, is in mm -hmm. some way connected to the language, like to the system that the language is inculcated in me, yeah. So, uh, I do not believe that it is simply a bridge between your thoughts and the world. It is more interactionist. I, I feel that our mind uses language as a tool to understand the world and to shape the world. Mm. Okay. For, for our thoughts to comprehend. Alright. So, it, like, it is just one tool being used by your mind and the material world outside is a separate third being. It's a separate entity which is not really affected by our perception or it is not affected by language. Whatever you say like has no real effect on the material world. Your, your language itself has no real effect but it has effect in the way you perceive something and that is your reality. You get what, you get, you get what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah. It, is, it is so interactionist in nature that it goes into the very fabric of our thoughts. You, you can't, you can't have thoughts without language. Okay, you get what I'm saying. You can't have the very concept of thoughts without language because now I'm so used to language. I have to think in a thought. I cannot think in pictures anymore. Like I could have a child problem. Okay, so like that is that is because that you're is, already a part of the system. You can't escape it. I can't. I think this it. was the same argument that you made last time about the nature of self. Remember how even if uh, uh, you have multiple cells floating around, it's because you inhabit this certain well, way, you cannot right? look at all the other ones, you true, true. cannot experience the other ones. So eventually you think about it as a structure that you are in, so you cannot escape the structure. Fine, so that was the uh, structures argument of course. Yeah. Very easy. Yeah. Very easy to understand. Of course. And all, no. meaning, all meaning exists in a chain of signifiers. So all of, a, all of, <laughs> all of meaning exists in a chain of uh, approximations. Yeah. For example, uh, how do you... The word hut exists between the word shed and the word house or, or bungalow or, or mansion, right? Okay. None of these words exist without each other. Yeah. They're all it's different. It's always a lateral chain. Yeah, it's like, it's like levels of houseness, if you, if you will, or levels of how, how, how much comfort you live in, True. right? So each of them depends on each other to uh, grand meaning. And his final point was, they also exist in opposition to each other. For example, uh, the word boy means nothing unless there is a girl, right? 
I mean, Levi Strauss made negation is necessary for definition. Levi Strauss made this argument in his book called Raw and the Cook, where he said, "What is cooked? Cooked is nothing. There is just raw. Yeah. We do something with it. Then the word cooked exists. So civilization and nature are actually the same thing. So you cannot say that they are opposites because they depend on one another. So that's exactly what. So binary opposites is what he calls them. So boy cannot exist without girl. Girl cannot exist without boy. So without the binary opposites, you don't have anything." Yeah, that was the yeah. that was the structuralist argument. Then this guy Derrida comes along. He fucks the entire structuralist argument. He says no, we're post-structuralist. Actually, there's no signified. There's an actual thing called the dog that walks on four legs. There is it. Instead, there's just a chain of signifiers. So he says, how do you define a dog? When I ask you, that thing over there walking on four legs, that's a dog. Derrida would say, what is a thing? What is four? What is legs? What is there? What is walk? <laughs> and he says, for you to define every signifier, you eventually go to another signifier, right? The image that forms in your head that is also a signifier of something that is out there in your world, right? Because you don't actually get that dog in your head. Because that dog, if if it's in your head, it cannot be in your head. Because it's a dog. It'll either sit on your head or not on it. It cannot go into your head. So you get a signifying image, a signifier image of it in your head. So Derrida says every word, the word dog depends on animal, on walk, on four, and then on the image for it to define. So there's no signifier, there's just signifiers. That's Derrida. So meaning is deferred, it's delayed. Because there is no actual meaning. It's not inherent, right? Because when you already say that there is no relationship between dog and like the animal dog and the word dog, then where does meaning come from? So Sir never thought it through. He said, we just assign the meaning. But whenever you speak a language, you mean something, right? Yeah. When you say a sentence. If I'm, what I'm saying does not make sense, you'll stop listening to me, right? Which means that there is meaning. But where does that meaning reside? This clearly does not reside between the animal and the world. As Derrida says, there is no actual signifier. There is no actual animal. There is only more signifiers we use to define that animal. So meaning is just something we create. I think there's another important, very important guy that we should talk about. He's called Ludwig Wittgenstein. Uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein was actually an Austrian guy, Jewish. He started he was studying uh, engineering, uh, aerospace engineering, I think. He's trying to make airplanes. This early 1913, 14, like early 1900s. Then he realizes it's all bullshit. He doesn't want to do it. 1920 something. So he then leaves it. Then he studies math and philosophy, just math and philosophy. Not the actual application based stuff because of course he does not want to apply any of it. He just wants to sit and think like us. So he studies math and philosophy and then he comes to the problem of of language. And he thinks language is essential. This is before Derrida. After Saussure, just after Saussure and before Derrida. So Wittgenstein then realizes that the fundamental question of philosophy is that of language. Like how we have discovered now. So that there is no meaning, how do you even start talking about things such as real and self and all that? Because you already depend on language to do that. So he realizes that the basic question is language. During his uh, lectures, he came upon uh, a certain realization where he goes with the experiment saying, imagine everyone has a beetle in their boxes, right? A world where everyone has a beetle in their box, in a box. But the box is uh, taped. You cannot look inside to verify whether it's a beetle. So everyone thinks it's a beetle. They've seen it. 
and they call it a beetle. Yeah. They call it a beetle. Everyone calls it a beetle, right? So you go out talking to people. You say, "I have a beetle." Now, no one can actually verify what that beetle is. True, true. So that word beetle can conjure up any sort of image image that you would want it to conjure up in your head. Yeah. Some person might think of the beetle as uh, George Harrison or Paul McCartney. Another person might think of the insect. Another person might think of the car. I know they're spelled differently, but they sound the yeah, same. So they would all think of different things at that time. Someone might even think of a human being masturbating in public, right? Or talking to you during a podcast. <laughs> so he says, since none of us can actually verify any of this, it's entirely useless for us to even think about philosophy through language, because he says language is in the end a very personal thing. He says the only way we should understand language is the way in it which is used, because things are not verifiable. Because in logic, the only way you have to verify is through the premises, is through math. But just like math, the number one and two do not exist in reality. So you already have to work with the axioms. He says you have to work with the axioms of language because they cannot be proved, and you cannot then go about questioning the axioms with the language itself, right? Which is why he says all of philosophy is actually bullshit because you are already using language, and you have to work with language. And all of us mean different things when we say different. Things and then we try to define it, but that eventually leads to more problems of, as we said, more definitions, and none of it is true. So it is better if we use the word beetle. Of course, in scientific journals and all that, everyone knows what they mean. Yeah. And till that language is very useful, but is that all that language does? No, of course not. The reason why we have everything else is because language is much more than just representational, scientific, and all that. We have art because of that. So he says it is the beauty of language that we can create art. That's why dogs can't create art. That's why it's not a language, right? He says it's entirely pointless to even think about philosophy with language, because what is self? You have to use language to define self, and then you think about things that are metaphysical. What is metaphysics without language? That's such a convenient way of saying it. I'm sorry, I don't like this attitude of saying all this is pointless just because they're using language to like uh, speak about it or discuss it. Because language is a tool. Okay, I don't think language is language is something that your conclusions will depend on your tool. Just like if you use, uh, just take a table, right? If you use your naked eye, the table looks like a table, like we see it. If you see it under a microscope, it will look entirely different. The more the power of the microscope increases, the different it will look. So his argument is the kind of tool you use will eventually lead you the kind of the things you see. Okay, I have. Okay, so I have. how do you know the table looks the way you see it with naked eye and not? What makes your naked eye more valid than the microscope have, version of the table? Okay, microscope microscope is the wrong example to use for table. Alright, so if a correct metaphor for this would be, I have a table, I'm making a table. Alright, and I need to see whether it is straight or not, whether it is level enough or not. Now I have, if I have just one kind of level measure, I have just that spirit measure. No, no, I use the microscope because. When you when you tackle the question of reality of how, what the table really is, you always have to look at it through different perspectives. That's true. That I'm is why about, I use the. I'm talking about language as a tool. Okay, like forget that metaphor. I'm using a different metaphor, just inspired from your metaphor. Okay, I'm making a table. All right, and I need to see whether or not it is level, whether it was not it is hmm. straight. And I have a spirit, like the only thing I have is a spirit level. All right. Now I use the spirit level. It is not a very accurate level. Right? It still has a few inaccuracies. There's there's scope for error. Uh, but I still use that because 
it is still better than not using anything. Now, if I had a digital level which was uh, like accurate to the point zero zero something, I would use that. But if I don't have that, I can't not use the spirit level just because Kimi Amrita's digital level me. What can I do? But it is still better to you have an inaccurate understanding than have no having no understanding. When he says that Kimi, I say that was the point of view. I I think that's bullshit because. What the fuck? Just because you won't have complete understanding doesn't mean you strive for complete. You, you stop striving for complete understanding. Which is why he does not question the use of language in science. Because when your term of measurement is what science does, which is why your tool of language can still be purified. Which is why there is math. Math is a very concrete language without subjectivity, right? Which is why you can make that uh, tool that you use very reductionist, and you can use it to define only certain things. But Philosophy does not, which is I use the table metaphor the way I used it, not the way you used it, because yours was measurement. You making something. Philosophy does not make something, right? Philosophy makes concepts. Philosophy ponders upon concepts. So what it does is, when which is I took the table example of the table because if whenever you come to the question of metaphysics of defining something of what is real, the question is not about you measuring reality or the that science. Because the one way to understand philosophy is when you do not have any concept, philosophers make the concept. Scientists test, scientists test that concept, yeah. and artists challenge that concept. Right? A very simple way to understand things. So these concepts are formed not by measurement, because you already have to have something to measure. Concepts have to be defined, and the definition depends on the tool. Which is why he says you can do science with uh, language, you can do math with language, you cannot do philosophy with language, because philosophy in itself is about creating concepts, and you cannot one. And when you use one concept as a measuring tool to create another concept, it will automatically give you results dependent on the tool. Which is why I use the idea of microscope because you're looking through language. You're not using language and still have your vision. Because in your example, you're using language not as an extension of your eye, but as an extension of a measurement or how you measure. Okay, so alright. I have glasses right now. Okay, yeah. if I have, if I was nearsighted, nearsighted means. If I was far-sighted, right? I couldn't read what was near to me. Yeah. I removed my glasses and I tried to make a straight line. Yeah. Okay. Now, if what I made was an actuality, a very like wiggly line, but because of I I don't have my glasses, I see it as a as an extremely straight line. It is a straight line for me. Okay. Now, if I had glasses, I would wear it and try to make it a better straight line. But without my glasses, that's the best straight line I can achieve. Yeah. Alright, that is that is how I see it. Like now, if the guy uses microscope, I use glasses. Whatever straight line is how I'm going to achieve it. So if I'm using language, yeah, language. You said it is dependent on the tool. The result, the concept you created, dependent on the tool. Yes, that's true. That's why you use a fucking tool. If yeah. you use a better tool, what you create will be better than. No, you don't use a tool for because the tool help. The tool helps you make a concept. The tool, the concept does not depend on the tool. That's the definition of a tool. Because a tool is not a part of the experiment. Because the tool is separate. Because if the tool, who? Uh, that's how you scientifically understand a tool. For example, if the microscope, just think about how a biologist looks at a microscope. Okay. Microscope is an extension of his vision, okay. so that he can understand the cell better. Right. Now, if he thought, but what for for a philosopher, a microscope would be how he defines a cell. That's two different things. Because when you are trying to see how a cell looks, what is inside a cell, microscope is very helpful. And that is the same as a table's measurement. But in philosophy, a microscope or language is you using you, you trying to understand the definition of reality. 
So in the philosophical question, the scientific question is what is inside the cell? The philosophical question is what is a cell? Or what is an atom? And when you try to question what is an atom and you take a tool, you already first, if with a rudimentary microscope, if you say what, ask what is the basic unit of life, you'll say it's cell, right? If your tool be becomes better, you'll say cell organism. After that, you might say atom, then subatomic particles, blah, blah, so on and so forth, right? So you keep going on. So at what point can you describe that definition? Can you, can you make that definition? Oh, yeah. That is what I'm trying to say. So that definition is very different from a scientific understanding tools. of measurement. Yeah. Measurement is great with tools. Because tools are separate from the things they're measuring. They're not a part of the thing. If they would contaminate it, they would never be used. Because if they, they're like catalysts, right? They yeah. do not take part and still influence it. But here, it actually makes up the concept there. Because... I am looking at a table with my eyes, so a table is a four-legged thing in philosophy. But if someone had microscopic vision, a table would just be the wood surface. And I have no way to disprove that. And that is exactly what Wittgenstein tries at. It's all personal. The way all of our language is essentially an extension of our sights. It just says, there's no way we can just philosophize. Maybe personally, yes. But then, if it's personal philosophy, it's not philosophy. It's just personal thought. Maybe don't write books about it. That's what he says. So, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. Yeah. So, that's what he tells philosophers. You're going around in circles, trying to define something using a definition already, using that microscope. So, it is, so it's not, he's not saying pointless in that way of measurement. So, that's a very good distinction. Uh, like, thank you for bringing that up because that makes uh, the difference between science and philosophy very apparent. With philosophy questions the fundamental nature yeah. of things. What makes something what it is? Science is studying that nature. It is not the question of nature. You have, you have to make the leap of faith of thinking that this nature is defined by certain yeah, things for then to for you to study. study it or do all of that. So he said that fundamental leap, we have to always take that leap. That's philosophy true. is again a leap. You cannot use language and all that and logic and math to make that leap any more objective. That leap is the leap of language, and that is the leap that makes us human. That's what Wittgenstein concluded. That is, I think, the biggest realization ever in philosophy, which is why I'm such a big fan of it. Alright, anyway, uh, so that brings us to an end of today's podcast, guys. Join us next week. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>